Hello, and welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I'm one of your three co-hosts. I'm Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I'm joined by Ethan Kosak. Hi, I'm uh, Ethan Kosak. I am a har- uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I am a- Take that again. Cartoonist and herpetoculturist and general malcontent. And Gabriel Ugetto. And I'm Gabriel Ugetto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Very well-oiled machine this is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the podcast. We have some very exciting and interesting things coming up where we talk about... uh, Tiger salamanders and gymnophthalmids and how to Finally. spell them. Yes. <laughs> uh, but before we go into that, we have a few announcements and updates from the mates, us the squaw mates. It is a pun, in case you're not aware, um, uh, from from all of our sides. So maybe uh, Gabriel, can you go first? Do you want to give us an update on the books and oh. whatnot? Um, um, uh, wait, I wasn't ready, but yes. Uh, so, well, one of the updates that I have is that um, I've been uh, illustrating this series of books uh, written by Professor Ben Garrett, which you know many of you might know from his BBC documentaries, and um, they are a, a series about extinctions, about the extinction of extinctions events that have occurred in our planet. And uh, there are a series of eight books, and the first three just came out um, a couple of weeks ago uh, on the U- in the UK. I don't know exactly when they're going to be released in each you know country. Um, I think the, the, they're going to be released later this year in the United States. But I'm super happy because I've been illustrating them, and it's been a lot of hard work, and they're super cool. The first... Um, Three books are about Hallucigenia, which is a Cambrian, very odd, worm-like creature. Uh, then is Don Cleostius, which is the placodont, the famous placodont uh, fish. The bite, the bitey boy. The yes. Bitey boy. Yes. And then the third one is about trilobites, um, and they're not just about a single species. That that's just like the main character of the book. But inside the book, you can see uh, both examples of modern animals of extant animals as well as animals from other periods or other animals from around the period that we're talking about each each book um deals like for example the, the first one uh deals with the about mostly about animals about the cambrian and mm. ordovician period and it talks about the ordovician extinction um so they're really cool and i'm, I'm very happy about the, uh, you know to have been working on them i'm still working on the latest later part of the series. And the other thing that um, I have to say is that I am doing, well, the things that I can disclose because there are a lot of things that I cannot say, but I'm working also on some package art uh, for uh, the Tyrannosauroid um, series of figures from Created Beasts. So I'm doing three of the Tyrannosaurs and, and that's been fun because it's something that it's, it's, you know something that I've not done before to create package art. So mm-hmm. I have that's, I have one cool. of their I have the Velociraptor from their first Kickstarter. 
That's super cool. I'm, yeah. I'm looking They're forward really to getting... They're really good figures. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting um, some of the Ceratopsians. I really like the Ceratopsians. I saw... I, I didn't uh, get to participate in that one, but uh, they look really cool. Yeah, they're super cool. Hmm. Nice. Cool. How, how long have you been working on the illustrations for the Garrett books? Oh, forever. I mean, I mean, it's been crazy because uh, all of a sudden, like we were working for a long time on one of the books and then the pandemic happened and all the time schedule went insane. So for the other books, I've had very short time to produce a mm. really large amount of illustrations per book. I have to... Basically, for one of the books, I actually had to do 27 illustrations in a month and a half. Which almost killed me. You guys saw that I was like suffering. It was one of the reasons why. why wow. That was why. Yeah. It was really intense. I, I don't think I've ever done something like that. And I'm fast. I'm, I'm, I'm a fast illustrator. But that was like out of the world. So, yeah. Um, but but they're super cool. I'm, I'm super happy with them. Um, it's nobody's fault that the schedule has been gone like that. It's been a, last year was a crazy year for everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. and that messed up, you know, people in the, in, in the editorial uh, company that we're working with went on for loan. And, you know, there was a lot of issues happening. So mm-hmm. um, it took a while to get everything back together. And when we got it back together, it had to be done immediately. So it's like, ah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Ethan, how are the newts doing? <laughs> The newts are the newts are well. Uh, mainly, uh, the stuff to talk about would be that my palmate newts are morphing, so I've got lots of uh, lots of them coming up on land. They morph so small; they're like an inch long. Mm. Uh, and what when when did the eggs get laid? Just so that, or when did they get laid and when did they hatch? Just so we have like an idea of the timeline. They've been well. They've been laying since my adults hit two years old. About six months ago they've been laying continuously since then mm, mm. so i have i have larvae at like all stages and they're okay. still laying um i'm and basically they don't sink up as like uh like no, late ones early I've, ones in the season i've got like four tanks going of different mm. sizes but i'm discovering that they don't really eat their their larvae so i have another experiment going where i'm just leaving some in the tank with the adults and they're getting to morph size. They're not. They don't okay. seem to be showing any interest in eating them. I have other newts where that is definitely not the case. Mm-hmm. And, so they're uh, not cannibalistic. No, they don't seem to have any interest in that. So that's, well, that's great. good. That can yeah. save you a lot of space, I guess. It could, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've got. I might have mentioned this before. They just started laying, but I my uh, synapse pyragoster, the uh, Japanese firebelly newts, I have. Uh, I had moved them into a new tank uh, about a month ago, and they started laying for the first time. And now I've got larvae, and they're looking great. So those cool. used to be I'm, one of the most common newts that you would see around. Uh, the Chinese firebelly were were. Oh, the Chinese firebelly. I have those too, but they're minor. Not they're not. I haven't gotten those to lay eggs yet. But the Japanese firebelly are basically the same idea, but a little bit bigger. And uh, yeah, but I mean, like they used to be so common, and now you don't see them anywhere. No, yeah, I used to be able to buy them at any pet shop for like five bucks, yeah. and now were those now, all imports then? They were by the millions. Yeah. They were imported, mm. yeah. Mm. And uh, and now I've seen more little morphs, little little guys going for fifty to a hundred dollars. Yeah, uh, 
Crazy. And and what's crazy is people get all mad because they want the adults. Like you used to be able to buy the adults. Yeah. The adults are no one's selling adults. You know. And uh, because of the survival rate, or because they. <laughs> Once they morph, they t- they come up on land and they stay terrestrial for like three to five years, uh-huh. and then go back in the water. Nobody wants to deal with the terrestrial phase because it's a pain in the ass. You have to feed them fruit flies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so I mean, I'm I'm on board with it. I'm ready for it. But nobody wants that. They want the adults where you just throw you know <laughs> goldfish pellets at them and hope for the best. So the morphs, you mean? The, yeah, the yeah. well, the adult. Well, once the adults go back in the water, they're a lot easier to feed. Ah, I see, I see, I see. Yeah. So when they go back to the water, how long do they stay? I mean, they stay just there. For... They stay adult. Yeah, I mean, my adults will haul out on you know a little land area every now and then, but they're primarily aquatic. They're in the water ninety percent of the time. Um. Okay. Okay. So, so they basically what... also go through an eft phase. They do. Yeah. yeah. And their eft phase is really long. I what see. I'm noticing with okay. these guys is the aquatic larval phase seems to be really quick like i've got two week old larvae and they're already showing little arm buds so well that, I th- that, i'm imagining that with us with other amphibians that's also depending on you know you cannot condition necessarily yeah, extra yeah. yeah you cannot extrapolate yeah. what's happening in a, in a terrarium right oh i absolutely and i think that's true happening. with the with the palmates i think my palmates are morphing smaller than they would in the wild because my temps are a little warmer than they would be mm-hmm you know, it's like 70 degrees in their tank right now, which is warm. And uh, I keep trying to get it down, but they keep, they don't, they don't seem to care that much. So mm. Mm. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So that's me. <laughs> nice. Uh, we have one uh, more announcement before we work on to the, to the science part of the show, and that is uh, that we are going to be setting up a Patreon in the very near future. Um, if not by the time this episode has aired, then certainly by the time the next episode airs. So watch our social media spaces on Twitter and Instagram and all the other places at Pod, and you can uh, follow and support us as we go on this delightful adventure going forward. Yes. That would be, it would be super great to have uh, Patreon supporters. The money will, every month, the money will go to whichever one of us defeats the others in single combat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's, that and also whoever is giving out the most money for the show. <laughs> and, the video, <laughs> and the video of that will be one of the one of the yeah. Patreon tiers. Yeah. Part of the be. reason, to give you an insight, the listeners in insight uh, behind the show of or behind the scenes of where some of the money is going to go is that we have been receiving on the website a little red flag that says, in future, uh, Apple podcast is no longer going to support websites that don't have a HTTPS uh, security. So we will need to upgrade our website security and all kinds of other things. So there's, um, there are costs associated with running the show. And yes. it would be super to have people supporting us and also then maybe also be able to interact with those people a little bit more directly because that's something that we uh, don't really have going on so much yet. Yes, and we may have some news on that front even before the Patreon goes live also. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just so you know, one of the one of the future perks of the Patreon support is that we are now recording all of these episodes with video. 
and editing them with video. And so uh, some Patreon supporters will be able to see our delightful faces while we talk to each other in uh, <laughs> from across the world, uh, which is delightful. So we or, can, or, or alternatively, you can pay to not see it. Oh, uh, that is. <laughs> we could do it that way around as well. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so uh, keep your eyes out on that, and uh, now we can shall we talk about some, some science? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, so um, as already mentioned at the top, we are going to be talking mostly about two specific uh, topics this time. The first is about tiger salamanders, specifically the entire genus Ambistema, basically, right? So the, the tiger, sp- tiger salamander species complex. <laughs> And this is in the, the context of a paper that was just published in PNAS, also called PNAS, by, as I've mentioned before, those of us with an infantile sense of humor. Um, by every, Kath- every time. Every time. Yeah. So the paper is by Catherine M. Everson et al. It was uh, it's fresh off the press. Um, the title is Geography is More Important Than Life History in the Recent Diversification of the Tiger Salamander Complex. This is really interesting because we we always hear when we have these discussions about uh, about Ambistoma and and Neoteny and the evolution of Neoteny, it's always kind of mentioned that that this is a driving force of that. uh, uh, Right. Yeah. And interesting to see that that may not be the case. So. Yeah, so I, a lot of people would assume that by evolving this dramatically different uh, life strategy, right, life history strategy, that you would no longer necessarily be able to mate with those individuals that don't have that life history strategy, right? Um, but as it turns out, uh, the evidence from this paper and apparently from a few previous papers that they draw on uh, indicates that there is substantial gene flow going among, going on among different populations um, of, of these ambistomid salamanders. So maybe let's first, like, for the people who don't know what they look like, what is an ambistomid salamander? Also called mole salamanders. Um, they're big, chunky, tend to, in their adult terrestrial form, live underground, in burrows uh and uh i I mean they're really large they're they're a a lot bigger than i think a lot of people who are familiar with maybe passing familiar with salamanders might think um you know we're talking upwards of a foot long and big is is uh ambistema tigerinum also so big the the true tiger salamander yeah really cool the true tiger salamander now is split also it's not oh, just tigrinum yeah. it's also mavordium and uh there's mavordium nebulosum and you know okay okay um and the and the neotenic individuals uh of those are enormous yeah i don't know if you've ever seen pictures of uh, maybe i can find one there's one picture that i think was on amphibia web or one of those where you can see a larval uh neotenic tiger salamander and it is twice as big as the largest axolotl I've ever seen. Hmm, cool. So, of course, yeah, most people will be familiar with axolotl. Um, and they are, of you know, Ambistema mexicanum, extremely widely used in various different um, uh, 
research fields, we have talked about them quite extensively previously on the show because the genome was published and all those things. Um, but they are not the only uh, neotenic ambistamid. And we also know that they can be metamorphosed if you uh, dump the right chemicals into their water. So there, but there is one species, which is Ambistema dumerilli, right? Yep. That is an obligate pedomorph. So when you transform it, if you induce the metamorphosis, it actually dies. And so it is the only member of the entire complex that really is a, a obligate um, that's, uh, pedomorphic species. Uh, I think that's the one that, that is being raised by nuns. Uh, yeah, so there is a very yeah, active yeah, choke. <laughs> there's a very active uh, conservation community of them, like uh, yeah. Ethan just mentioned in situ. I think it is right that they have those uh, yeah. a group of nuns working with them. But in Europe, there's also a breeding population um, being raised by various different um, hobby breeders, essentially. So they they banded yeah. together in order to um, yeah. The European them. breeders are also supposedly the only ones who have true. Mexicanum, true, ah. un, unfettered, un, you know, virginal, not mixed with other tiger salamanders. See, that's the thing. The, the part of this that doesn't surprise me is that Ambistema love hybridizing. Hybridizing, yes. So if you like the biological species concept, you you should just uh, <laughs> maybe skip forward in the podcast for a few minutes because <laughs> we're going to be throwing that under yeah. the bus. <laughs> I mean, they're they're known for that. Even in the even in the wild, uh, in places where you know, Ambistema maculatum and Jeffersonia, at the, where, where they all overlap, they will use each other's genetic information and... Willy-nilly, uh, yeah. 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 I don't fully under... Every time it's been explained to me, my brain breaks, so I don't fully <laughs> understand how the unisexual thing works, but it does. And uh, Yeah, and there are a lot of species in the mix here as well, right? The uh, genus Ambistema has at a glance i would say 15 to yeah 15 yeah. to 18 different species level yeah. or subspecies level well, units and, and some of those names are like well because i think originally some of the neotenic forms were described as separate species oh yeah i imagine the taxonomy the historical taxonomy of the group is a total is mess a, is a mess yeah yeah there's uh, an Ambistoma taylori, which only lives in like one. A lot of these guys only live in like one lake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And taylori is interesting because that lake is salty. This is one of the only known amphibians to live in partially salty water. Crazy. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Now, so. What they've what they've done in this study is they've taken an existing uh, genetic data set and really expanded it. So it was originally um, 93 individuals for 95 nuclear loci, and they expanded it to 347 individuals that crossed most of the United States as well as uh, intensively surveying within Mexico. So basically, they got, as far as I can tell, all the species. Um, the you know, and and they were looking <laughs> quote, at the quote unquote species. yeah quote unquote all the all, all the quote unquote species exactly yeah. um, and looking across the thing and then they did various different things that you typically do with data of this kind. Um, 
it's interesting that they've taken a specific um, uh, nuclear locus-based approach to this rather than using reduced representation sequencing, so like RADSeq or whatever. Um, I guess that the, the strategy here to do that makes a lot of sense because um, salamanders have, of course, gigantic genomes. And if you try to do RADSeq with them, you might get, you might suffer from um, not finding the right SNPs because your genome's so big, you have to sequence at very high intensity in order to get the same SNP across the two different individuals. Um, so I understand then maybe a little bit more why they would do it with this, with this um, other approach. And then they applied various different like methods that, that we typically apply. So there's a method called structure, which basically says to which group can I assign the individuals if I were to try and sort them, how would I sort them best based on the genetic data that I've got. And there already you can see that there are some clusters forming from the genetic data that have nothing to do with the- um, hu The human construct of, of species of, of where they are, yeah. Well, the, the, it has nothing to do with the neotenic state. It's all about actually where they are. So it's geography that is causing the clustering much more strongly than neoteny, than this retention yeah. of, uh, of, of uh, juvenile characters into the adult phase, or rather the failure to metamorphose in this case. An interesting sort of tangential note to that is tiger salamanders are extremely hard to breed in captivity. Uh, the adult terrestrial forms... The only people who seem to have a lot of luck with it are those European hobbyists that we mentioned. Hmm. And the people who have had luck are always breeding neotenic tiger salamanders. Mm, interesting. And then raising up and like some of them will be, uh, will fully morph. Uh -huh. But they, they tend not to be able to reproduce whatever the conditions are for the terrestrial versions. Right. To do it. Huh. Interesting. Well, I, I wonder then if there's a, if it's based on the conditions, if they're just not getting the tank conditions correct for the... I, I, I absolutely think so. And yeah. I think, because uh, also I think the people who have had the most luck are doing it in outside enclosures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, not in, you know... Oh, interesting. Yeah. So what one thing that they did here in the study is to assign the various different species names that exist into a life history category. So basically what level of uh, pedomorphosis exists and yep. divided into four stages from the obligate metamorph where they must, must, must go through metamorphosis of which there are very few. Uh, in fact, yeah. there's only one ambistoma that's ambistoma californiensa, which yep. it turns out is sister to all the other species a very, very deep genetic lineage. Um, the reason they're the reason axolotls are illegal in California. Oh, because there's an endemic ambistoma. Yes, and they're afraid that that it will interbreed with it. And funny, yeah. I wonder if they can interbreed because don't they know, are but genetically very me. different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, true. <laughs> um, anyway, it goes it goes from that obligate metamorph all the way to the obligate pedomorph um, and yep. you have many different combinations in between so there are some species where they're almost all pedomorphic and then some of them yep. are uh andersoni for uh, mm -hmm. would be one yeah 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 and all the way yeah it, it, you have various different combinations of those different traits and then using that information they were able to uh, also do some some modeling approaches to find out like what is the um 
what's the relationship between interbreeding between populations and whether or not they are um, which what, what level of pedomorphosis do they retain or what level of neoteny do they achieve I take a little bit of issue with the use of pedomorphosis for for this uh, they're just the the terminology of pedomorph versus neotenic and stuff is really complicated because Perennibranchiate. Uh, yeah, perennibranchiate is actually probably nicer because they, they they're somewhat in, intermediate, but they do retain the gills, you know, the, yeah. the branchiae. So I guess that makes a lot of sense. Um, anyway, so there are various different lines of evidence that they've presented in this paper. I think it's nicely constructed. I don't know what you thought, Ethan. I, I'm pretty convinced. I mean, you're a better judge than I am when it comes to papers, <laughs> but I, I, I thought it was an interesting paper and, and I could follow it. So that's, you know, yeah. says something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly thought it was fascinating that we get all of these different perspectives that basically mostly add up to this one trait that we thought was taxonomically important of pedomorphosis versus non-pedomorphosis turns out to have evolve yeah. probably you know, repeatedly to different degrees across the different uh, across and, the and grade. I, and I think it makes sense also yeah. in just thinking more about how, you know, ambistima just just don't care and uh, you know. So it kind of is in line with some of that. Right. But it's really interesting to see that historically, you know, something we thought mattered maybe doesn't matter as much. So. Yeah. But I mean, on the other hand, I, I think there's, it's important to keep in mind that they say, okay, geography does matter. But I do think to some extent we can expect that, at least in some cases, geography matters more when you're dealing with really pedomorphic species than it would with metamorphic species. Because mm -hmm. any species that has a dispersal phase that doesn't involve water is much better able to overcome obstacles like cliffs and, and mountains, right? Otherwise, yes. you have to go down to the sort to, to the you know downstream lake and swim up the other stream in the other direction, which is very inefficient in terms of getting you from know. Point a to point B. But what's funny is I immediately think of I have had axolotls that I raised in ponds and observed them crawl out of the pond into a different pond. So cool. Yes, but also ambistoma don't care. Yeah, I'm really interesting. I feel like I can offer so little to this conversation because I'm there. <laughs> well, we're about so to little about we're about uh, to go into much. Jimmy's, so you're gonna get your you're yeah. Get your, you know. <laughs> so no, I'm just saying here's that I, I honestly, I don't. I know so little about about um, stomach. I and I must admit that I find them not particularly super interesting. <laughs> no, and they're also dumb as bricks. But on the other hand, they are kind of charming. Um, yes. Yeah. So. But, but I do think that something that will be of, tax, of, of interest to you, Gabriel, is what the authors chose to do in terms of their taxonomic recommendations, because they had some opinions on the taxonomy of the group, with which I think I agree. But those opinions, they, of course, because this is a PNAS paper, they didn't put in the main text, but they instead put it in the supplements. And so you have to go to the supplements in order to figure out which of the species they've recommended to be synonymized. And as it happens, they have recommended for some of the species to be um, synonymized with one another. Uh, specifically, it would be um, Flavipiparatum and Amblycephalum should be uh, synonymized with Amblycephalum having the priority because it's well, the older those are name. Very, uh, those are obscure uh, 
I think those are like really, really one lake type yeah. crit- critters. Yeah. Apparently two, then, two lakes now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, two lake yes. critters. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the range two of the species now. is doubled. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, and then they, so there are a few different species that they sunk as subspecies. Oh, and, no, and but why? Well, we did, can... they keep, did they keep Tigrinum and Mavordium and stuff separate? Uh, yes, Tigrinum and uh, Velocity at least remain separate, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what's missing for me is a, you know, an idiot-proof table at the end of the supplementary text wait, or somewhere in the well, document. This, I mean, this says, stuff does this have a lot of this, conservation this implications. Huge. You know, uh, huge. Well, exactly. Okay. But... Yeah. Do they actually refer to them as subspecies? Are they like reviving these stupid models of species bullshit? We can we can get into a subspecies debate at some point because um, I, I so yes, generally I think subspecies are terrible. Uh, they they have historically been badly used, but recently Kevin DeKiro has published a paper on subspecies that completely redefines the idea of what a subspecies is. And in my view, makes it much more useful. So what Kevin argues... What is his, in, uh, what's the concept? His, his idea is essentially a subspecies is a species. It is a species, but it's within a larger sort of... Complex. It's, so it's basically uh, a sublineage within another lineage. Because it, 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 the, the reimagining of the... Because until now, subspecies have been very, very poorly defined. Right. We it's been like, nah, we think it's a geographical thing. Like, that's what um, Ernst Maya said for the longest time. He was like, so the species is supposed to show is something that's supposed to show. Yeah. And it's something that's supposed to show clinal variation in a lot of things that are end up. And those those things are out. Taxonomic diversity. Right. So what Kevin DeKiros argued in his new paper, which came out last year in 2020 in herpetological review yeah herpetological review was that a subspecies are just incompletely separated lineages within a more inclusive lineage so, so basically it, yes they are, like they are incipient differentiation species. yeah and in many cases this allows us to to have a more um it allows us to have a, a bit of a more precise terminology for the yeah, units but what, that we're looking what, at. What are the parameters? What, where do you make the, where do you cut the line again? Well, is this it? is the thing. The, the important thing to remember in under this reimagining is that the trinomial in the case of, of the new version of the subspecies. So this, uh, what is it? Achistrodon contortrix contortrix is the example. It's a water moccasin. Yeah, that's the example that uh, De Quiroz gives. Um, using the trinomial under this idea doesn't necessarily mean that the two different subspecies that you're dealing with are somehow inferior to another thing, but rather it's saying these things are closely related and are exchanging genes within the general sort of network that is these, this, this unit. So I find it a useful thing. This is actually something my colleagues and I are in the process of embracing uh, for I guess some my reaction frogs. to that is that's all well and good but in the specific case of ambistema that is might, not the way that they have dealt with it in this paper might that um, not be muddying the waters a bit um, I mean they've already been using subspecies names for lots of ambistema 
and I, I don't know that it's that. I don't know that it's clarified much. Yeah, and and also these authors did not use Dakiros' new yeah. version of yeah. what the subspecies is, but are using rather like the historical. To be fair, doesn't mean anything. To be fair, I haven't seen the first paper that is using Dakiros. Uh, you know, uh, proposal. They, I mean, it's a new thing. It only came out last year. It is coming. Um, Would you adopt it? I we are adopting it. Yeah, yeah. Really, I especially really, because so I'm I'm currently working on some fish papers that are um, an absolute nightmare if you don't have subspecies. Mm-hmm. So we there are some cases in cichlids where you basically can't escape it because the the levels of variation are so nested within one another that you wind up getting this ridiculously reticulate situation and you need some way of recognizing that without calling everything a species. Have you seen something like this? I mean, he, he makes a case for, I guess it's a Kistrodon uh, contortrix and Conanti, right? It's what he's trying to differentiate yeah. there. So yeah. the Florida, the Florida, no, no, the Florida like, cottonmouth. Laticinctus. Oh, Latisinctus so is the yeah because Conanti is not supposed to be a different species. It's accepted as a different species. Yeah. So um, I don't know, man. I just have a big. It, to me, it's this really modding, you know, making everything even more complicated. And, well, the alternative is to not recognize it with a terminology at all and just or to make leave it, it just as... like a, it's like a you know it's a, it's a geographical variation. Of some kind yeah, but of in this case, the point is that it's not a geographical variation. The point is that you have these two things that in part occur in syntopy and have some limited degree of, of gene flow, but they are across most of the genome separated. But what so species? What species? So, so yeah, they might have a narrow zone of, 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 of but not, not not entirely isolated species. Basically, it's a it's a mini species. I recommend reading I just, the paper. It's an interesting uh, take on the whole concept. And uh, I, I do think that it makes the term usable in the But why would you want to use it? We were getting away from useful. it finally. Because it can be helpful. Jesus. No, it cannot. <laughs> what, what's wrong with it? So there are, there are several species that are, up, uh, you know, morphologically and, and, and even genetically variable and, 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 and diverse. That doesn't mean that you have to separate one of each, each one of those variations. No, but this, the, the, the idea here is that you can align this with the, uh, the unified species concept, which is another one of Kevin DeCuros's suggestions. And you can basically say, Which I, okay, I agree with that one. Yeah. You know. Well, this says at during that gray zone of speciation, there is often gene flow. And when you have high levels of gene flow, but all of the uh, but several other criteria are being supported, you can start to call those subspecies because they're the only difference between a species and a subspecies here is a is a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. Whereas yes, historically, my, my concern subspecies is... have been a, a difference in kind. Where is he? Where is he marking the, the degree in variation? Because we both know for fish is going to variate that for reptiles and within different groups of reptiles is going to vary. vary. You That's know, which... the whole point of these different concepts is that they can be adjusted to suit the system. So, so what is he? What is he proposing for? Like something like a kistrodon? 
It basically says it doesn't matter which one you use, whether you call them subspecies or species, we're both talking about the same thing. It's just that one tells you more informatively which are the, in, which are the units that are, that are interbreeding. Okay. Because if you treat them as two separate species, you assume, okay, these things are genetically isolated. Whereas if you treat them as two subspecies, you say, you acknowledge, essentially, under this idea, you acknowledge that there's still gene flow going on. So, but most species, a lot of species have, a lot of different species have, have, have areas where they have genetic, you know, that's not new. I mean, humans are a big example of that. So, of course. Yeah. That's, I don't, I think it's unnecessary. Is it still, Gabriel, is it still Ganatodes fuscus? Yes, it is fucking Ganatodes fuscus. They don't, even, they don't even have a really contact narrow zone or anything. Oh, okay. All right. Just making sure. So, I recommend reading the paper anyway. Uh, it'll, there'll be a link in the show notes. And then people can form their opinions and let us know what you think. Um, yeah. Anyway, back to, back to Ambistema. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else more that we really need to add, huh? That, I mean, it's, it's well, a good we've, paper. We've, it's... we've sorted the biological species concept and yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I, uh, I think it's interesting that the embistamids fall generally into three main clades. Each of those main clades is geographically defined. So one of them is the northern Mexico clade. One of them is the central Mexico clade. And the uh, the third one is the central U.S. clade. And then sister to all of those, there is Californensis, uh, Cali Californienza. Yeah. Um, yeah. They are, they are noticeably different, too. I mean, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. And Bistoma, yeah. the turtles of the salamander world for me. <laughs> <laughs> or the or the cichlids of the. Yeah. No. Yeah, it is kind of weird that these comparatively slow, uh, slow evolving animals, I guess you could say, um, are are having patterns that are reminiscent of what we see in a lot of the rapidly evolving fish. Actually, while we're on the topic topic of salamanders, um, it's worth mentioning that it was with great sadness that we heard the news of Dave Wake's passing. Yeah. Um, that is a huge loss for the community. Uh, David Wake was an absolute icon in terms of understanding salamander yeah. development and biogeography. The a whole ring species thing is really a thing because of a lot of work that David um, Dave put into it. So can you tell it, us again what the name for the ring species is in German? It has a name. It has a name. You refer to it as a as a German name when you talk about it. So how is it that? Did I? It, no, 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 no. I mean, in general, when you're talking about ring species, you call it by the German. Everybody calls it by the German name. But ring. Uh, I forgot the name. Something. It's a very long German word. I don't as, know. As, as it is, as they always, as they all are. Uh, is there uh, any other kind? Yeah. Yeah, there's a term for ring species that is no, no, it's like, uh, German words. Oh uh, yeah, Long well, German it's like words. for like fossil-sized lagerstaff. It's like lagerstaff. It's like a, <laughs> yeah. I forgot what the name is. is uh, in, Maybe in it's Rassenkreis. Yes, that Rassenkreis. Drink. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, essentially just a, a, a circle of races, which I don't know if that's better than ring species. Um, yeah. But yes, so um, that was that was really sad news. I only met Dave 
once or twice. Um, and I just was delighted by his personality. It was really incredible to, to talk with him. I met him at the um, Evolution Congress in Montpellier in 2018. And he was so... We hadn't met before, and yet he was immediately so friendly and charming. And from everything that I've heard about everyone who's worked with him, they really found him to be a fantastic mentor and and teacher. And it is uh, really, it was sad news to to hear. Yeah, I, I've never met him, but I've you know, as anybody that has ever has to have ever read anything about Salamanders, I've read a lot of his papers, and he did uh, basically monographs on neotropical uh, glossa and, and other salamanders. So you have to be familiar with his work, very familiar Absolutely. with his work if you were working with uh, neotropical salamanders. Yeah, and also uh, one of his works with Jim Hankin was foundational in the field of understanding miniaturization in amphibians. Their work together on um, especially the, the hand bones within salamanders and uh, and frogs that are miniaturized is was absolutely crucial. So, well, his legacy will will certainly continue. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a sad piece of news. Um, on on that note, it's also I wanted to mention several episodes ago that we lost also Phil Bishop, um, who he was an absolute conservation warrior. He was the organizer and main driving force behind the organization of uh, the, the World Congress of Herpetology in Dunedin last year. And it's such a, that was, that came as a real blow to me because I, he was just such a kind and inspiring person. He put so much energy into the community yeah. and then uh, seemingly I, I actually, out of... He actually, had, I did actually have interaction with, with Phil and, and did some, uh, artwork for him and mm. very good guy yeah and he came, it came out of the blue that he had a, a, a brain tumor I, I believe it was a tumor um, and the decline was extremely fast and sudden so that was also very sad news uh, it's been on top of all the other tough times that we've been having in the um, as a society as a whole uh, it's always hard to lose inspirational people yeah so yeah Okay, on that note, shall we move on to talk about some gymnophthalmids? Finally, I'm much anticipated. <laughs> Subject. Even Darren Nash has been asking for it. Has been asking. At, okay, from the top. This how do you spell? You. How do you spell gymnophthalmidae? Oh, that's a very long word. G Y M N O P H T H A L M I D A E. Yes. M O U S E. And but now, Gabriel, I I heard you whispered to me before we started recording that there's now another family, and therefore we have a higher rank of gymophthalmoides. What? <laughs> well, well, so so yeah, so for a long time, um, gymnophthalmids. Like, no, let me start from the beginning. So, gymnophthalmids when they first, you know, when we're familiar with these lizards, they were considered a subfamily of teats, right? And everybody that knows teats is a sort of tegus, and, and, which is why they were, for a long time, they were given the informal name of micro, micro teats, 
So, which is uh, a stupid name, which is why we started calling them Jimmies. Well, yeah, and, and because episode they are, one they, of the podcast. Yes, but they but they are um, they are indeed related um, to uh, teids, and they form a clade called teoids, right? Which includes teids and gymnotomy. But a few, I think it's a couple of years ago. I, I don't remember exactly when the other family, the reason they, they were subdivided. But um, recently, and I'm going to tell you in a second, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, yeah, in 2016, there was a paper that uh, showed that um, a, a separate group, a, 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 two genera of, of gymnostalmids, which are called allopoglossus and tychoglossus, were um, sister either to the rest of the gymnotalmids or to gymnotalmids and teids. So they were separated in a separate uh, family called Allopoglossidae. And uh, they are 23 species that basically were removed from the other gymnotalmids. So they, right, right, I think right now they're mostly considered to be the sister group to the reminder remaining gymnotalmids. They look very similar to all the other, to many other gymnotalmids. They are secretive, skink-like uh, lizards. I will talk about them a little bit later. Um, so let me give you guys, because you know nobody, most people are very unfamiliar um, with gymnostomics, and I mean, I, I would say most people in the United States and or, or most people that don't don't live in like South America are unfamiliar with gymnostomics. They're not big in the America. in the herp trade either. They're not no, commonly... No, because... Uh, and thankfully, they are not. Even, yeah. though they are, even though there are many species that are... Um, that could be, you know, they're beautiful. Um, but I think it's primarily... I'm not sure why. They're, they're secret, a lot of species are secretive, but they are not particularly uncommon. Several species are not particularly uncommon. So I don't know why, but I'm happy that they're not popular in the pet trade mm. um, they are they are so right now there are about 55 genera and to about 270 species although there are more than that um, expect that to reach 300 in the next five to six years easily i think um, one of our uh, can i just say one of our patreon goals needs to be get gabriel a new chair Yes, my squeaky chair. Me and my squeaky chair. Um, so, yeah, so in the next, I, I would expect them very, very soon to reach 300 species. So it's a large radiation uh, of yeah. lizards. And they're, they're mostly distributed in South America. Um, most of the species in South America, except in the north of South America, most of them are distributed east of the Andes uh, in most of South America. And they are also present in Central America, south of and the southern from southern Mexico south, but that they're very um, the diversity in southern in Central America is poor. Most of this of the diversity of the of the family is within South America, and there are also there are some genus Gymnostomus, the the ones that, that give the family the name that also um, is found in the Lesser Antilles. They have they have one species in the Lesser Antilles. Um, so. 
it's a, like I said, it's a very diverse family and it's also morphologically diverse, even though most people, I don't know if you guys are familiar with any gymnostalmids. Are you guys familiar with any gymnostalmids in particular or not? Just when we've had discussions about them and you've, you've brought up stuff, pictures of them and stuff. And they were, we've very... mentioned a few on the show before. Like I think we mentioned yeah. Bakia at some point. Mm-hmm. They were but... kind of skinky looking. Yeah. So I was wondering if there are there are there any like uniting traits that all gymnophalmids have? Like for instance, the the um, uh, plated lizards almost all have a single fold that runs the length of the the side, and then you can immediately see, okay, this is a plated lizard. Is there any like trait that is unifies the gymnophalmids? Not that I can remember. I, all the species are, ver- are very very variable. Um, on squamation and morphology. And uh, they don't have osteoderms. And uh, they, all the species, so all species have limbs, but the limbs have been highly reduced in several different clades separately to the yeah. point which, which some almost have lost them, but they still are present externally. And uh, they all, uh, they all have like a, Protusable um, tongue, like Tiets do, or like Cerates do. I was going to ask: Do they do they tongue flick like Tiets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 have that as well. Um, I don't think there's. I'm trying to think if there's any. Apparently, many of them have a transparent lower eyelid, um, which is somehow significant enough to be mentioned on the Wikipedia page. But otherwise, <laughs> but no, I, I don't, don't think know. that's. Sig- I don't think that's significant. Most of yeah, them... because we we know that some of the fossorial ones are uh, have lost eyelids, basically, right? Well, so not not that, that, not that they have lost it, but they not not that they well no. There are a few species, a few, a few including gymnostelmas, that they don't have uh, they haven't lost their eyelid. They have a braille like geckos, and they have or like snakes. So they have a, a transparent scale covering the eye. Well, I mean, they then they don't have an eyelid anymore, do they? They don't have movable eyelids, but that's right, basically that's what, what we, it is. That's what like, I mean. Yeah. So, uh, but the, those are very few. There are only a, a few species in the in the in the in the family that have that. Um, so, I'm going to take you. So there are several subfamilies, right? And I'm going to take you through each of the subfamilies, so you get an idea what they are more or less like. So the first subfamily is Gymnostalmini, which is the the includes. The most kink-like of all the gymnotalmids, and you can see that by if you if you Google um, Tretiosinkus, Let me uh, write it down for you guys so you can Google it while I talk about them. T R E T I O S C I N C U S. Yes. Tretiosinkus. So they, oh, they look I was, very. Okay, I was yeah, I was I was like, wait, that's. Uh... That's a frog-eyed gecko, but that's different. That's Teratoskinkus. Very yeah, close. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> so they look extremely skink-like. Oh, they man. They have the, the, the similar coloration. And uh, they, they, the, this, they're the typical represent, rep- representative of this subfamily of Gymnostamine. Because they, they, this is the subfamily that looks the most skink-like. And they have very smooth 
either smooth or um, keeled scales, but they look very shiny, very skink-like. They are difficult to grasp when you have when you have them in your hand. They basically live the same lifestyle that any regular skink in North America will live, which is basically to be, and you know, mostly they either are found like on their on their uh, they're semi-fossorial. Um, but some species, like from the genus Tertiskinkus, can be found also perched on the base of the trees, like um, some skinks do. And Gymnostalmus, which is the one that gives the the, the, the name of the, the family, um, are also very... Okay, so let me take you back to Gymnostalmus. have a very um, uh, reduced, what will, it will be in our hand, our thumb. They have a very reduced clawless... Thumb. First finger, yeah. Yeah, first finger, and and in Gymnostalmus, that that finger is gone completely. So they only oh. have four um, fingers on the on the mans, and they are uh, they also tend to have reduced limbs, although they are not super reduced. But you, they they're starting to get that snaky shape where they have where they move mostly by undulating their body. They have a very interesting. Um, uh, uh, lifestyle because they they basically swim within the leaf litter. They come out for a little bit, they bask, and they swim back. It's similar to what here in the United States uh, you would see ground skinks doing. For all those that are familiar with um, uh, ground skinks here in the United States, they behave in a similar manner. They have a very complicated taxonomy. They um, there are parthenogenic parthenogenetic species within this um, genus. And cool. uh, this was one of those cases where people were able to predict where, around what area a, a parent species was going to be found before they found it. Hmm. So f between the, 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 the uh, parthenogenetic clone and one of the parent species, they were able to predict where the other parent species more or less probably will be found. And then they found it. Cool. Um, so it's a super interesting family. Uh, subfamily, sorry. Then you have the largest of all subfamilies, which is called Circosorine. And this is the most diverse and the one that, uh, that has like all kinds of different uh, uh, taxa within it. Um, maybe I should leave this one for to the end because that's the most complicated to talk about. Yeah, let's talk about first about Riolamine, which is a very uh, recently erected family, subfamily of uh, Gymnostalmis. They are endemic to the um, Guyana Highlands shields, to the Tepui, which mm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Tepuis, but that's a... Uh, are you familiar with the novel The Lost World? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so this wait, is well, what... Wait, 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 do you mean the Arthur Conan Doyle one or the Christ Yeah, one? the Arthur Conan Doyle one. He was okay. inspired in the in this region of southern Venezuela and, and Table and Mountains. Guyana. Yeah. The Tepui are table mountains that basically each Tepui has an isolated fauna or mostly isolated fauna on its top. So each mountain top acts to a better, to a lesser, to a some degree as an island. And a, a lot of these uh, genus. <clears throat> this family, which this subfamily, which is called Riolamine, and the, the genus is Riolama, um, 
is endemic to those tepuis. They also look a little bit skink-like, but I don't know if you if you if you see. I don't know what you guys would think about them. I don't know if there are many photos of them online even. Yeah, Rio Lama. Rio Lama. R I O L. I don't know if you would call that skink-like. Were you able to find it or not? Uh, I found one or two yeah, pictures. I guess they're some sort of skink-like. Yeah, they look a little bit like very small Zonosaurus. So there are a few a few species of uh, Gerasaurid lizards, so the plated lizards, that look quite similar. They also have those regimented uh, dorsal scale rows. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. which is something that you will find in many, in many. Um, Give those helmets, those sort of also in large... some of the alligator lizards, right? So there's mm -hmm. yep some overlap. This is what I was telling you that that's why probably in South America, right? You know, skinks have had a a, a difficult time because gymnostalmids are taking a lot of this small lizard, you know, niche, which yeah. they, they tend to use. Really interesting. Okay. It would be cool to see how the diversification dynamics of these different groups happen in different systems. So as we had. Uh, Hiral talking about on the last episode, you know, with with the um, we have various different lizard groups that are already existing in South Africa, whether or not that sort of constrained the ability of skinks to to differentiate there, uh, which you know which came first and how were the niches then occupied, in what order, yeah. would be fascinating. And and if you see in the Google search, uh, I'm sure that you got. A, I think it's for me. It's like the fourth picture in the row. You can see that the, the typical tepui um, environment, in which yeah. yeah, in which they live, is very cold because these are high mountain tops. It's mostly there. A lot of time it's misty. Um, it, it's it's and they live within. You know, it's a barren in certain places. It almost looks. Uh, it almost looks. Uh, um, almost somewhat extraterrestrial in the way that you know the landscape looks like so if anybody has seen up yeah uh exactly. they the landscape that they went to in the house when they landed the house and where they met kevin the bird uh is actually also supposed to be on top of a tipui as far as i understand right yeah, yeah. and yeah and so that is kind of the landscape that we're talking about that very weird Be rocky because the whole thing is that they were saying that they were, you know, these things were, so they are super ancient. The, those tabletops are super, super ancient in, not so much in the fauna, but in the geolo geologically. So they were mm -hmm. always saying that you could find like lost, that's why the lost world was called. Lost that. world, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know, okay. four fingers up front, five fingers in the back, that's a salamander to me. <laughs> well, or this one, yeah, that's only for Gymnostalmus, though. Gymnostalmus. The, the Riolama, all fingers are present, I think. Okay. But they have a clawless, they have a clawless finger in one of them, too, now that I remember. Okay, um, so then we so have... So it's a crocodilian, then. <laughs> well, we're about to get into some that look very crocodile-like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now we're going to talk about the other subfamily, which is called... So the next three subfamilies sometimes are are for some researchers they are grouped into one subfamily for other researchers they are grouped into three different subfamilies i'm for the sake of clarity i'm going to keep them as three different subfamilies so i can Spoiler. talk about each group different yes i am in this case I, I prefer to do that so one of them is the famous bachine which includes one genus i think it's only one genus bachia bachia which is very famous and if you guys 
I'm gonna. I don't know if Ethan has ever seen a bachia. It's B A A C H I A. Okay. Yeah. So that uh, is interesting. Yeah, they are very. They have all the species have reduced their limbs, but the interesting thing is um, that according to one f paper, and I don't know if is that is considered still as the. It almost looks like a worm lizard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, I can't think. Of, I can't, You know what I'm talking about, though. I, I can't think of the name. I also for people that, the name right now. For people that that are here in the United States and are familiar with Florida lizards, think about something like the sand skink. Something like a sand skink would be similar to this. Sand skinks in Florida, which live only in the, in the central part of the of the ridge in central Florida. They, they swim in the sand. They, that, they kind of look like that. But Bakia does not live anywhere near the sand. They live in the leaf litter of the forests. All, all the species are forest species. And they have a very complicated taxonomy like all the other gymnotalmids. <laughs> um, uh, they are conservatively, conservat con very conservative um, coloration-wise, but um, the lepidosis or the... Or the scale morphology it's very helpful and also the number of digits it used to be it used to for a long time their their taxonomy was complicated and people used to think that a species could have several you know you can some specimens can have two fingers some specimens can have three toes some says and now we're finding out in the more and more is that those are actual species differences and <laughs> that there are several species complexes in which some species can have Three toes. Some others can have one toe. Some others can have. It's not. Do that... these have? Do they have hind limbs? I'm yes. Saying... Oh, okay. All right. And some of them are very small, so that's why you you, you yeah might okay. not be able to see. Yeah, them. I mean, like they look like really reduced, huh? Yeah, they're very reduced, and they move for all intents and purposes as snakes. Um, they are very. They're not common, but they're part partly because. They are so secretive. They're mostly their eyes are also very small. If you can see, they they don't have big eyes, and and they are mostly you know leaf litter inhabitants. You barely see them uh, out. You know you have to basically look for them to find them. It's not so like, they're uh, they're semi fossorial. They're not fully. They're uh, largely fossorial. I think more than semi. They they are. Yeah. You know they they come out, but they, you, you don't see them that that often outside. You have to look for them every time that I've, that I found a backyard. Yeah, it's always because I've been like you know looking on their tree trunks or yeah we need a better term for uh, i guess the term littoral exists or things that li really live in the leaf litter would be because there are, this is true of so many different groups right there are skinks that only live in the leaf litter but don't actually go into the soil itself and yeah. there are frogs that also live within that sort of i guess mesocosm or the you know that that interstitial space between yeah the top of the leaf litter and the actual soil yeah. that we don't really have a term that is consistently used for that. So we which is so which is surprising because so many reptiles and amphibians so use many that. reptiles and amphibians live yeah. in that zone. And if we keep falsifying it as saying this is either fossorial or terrestrial, then you're belying the actual variation and, and the natural range that exists between those two different niches, right? Yeah. 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 So this is a super interesting group. Um, Many new species are being described every year, and and for me they're one of the most interesting uh, groups because there they there seems to be the case 
that some so in evolution is usual is easy to reduce or lose some part of your anatomy but it's not easy to re, to gain it back and it seems like some bacchia according to some some phylogeny have Is dolo's law yeah have have regained digit numbers or or increase the size of their limbs which is not that commonly seen according to cephalogeny although there has been some you know conflicting debate yeah, yeah debate about that yeah and it's also very very common for these things to be reduced repeatedly and much more often reduced repeatedly than they would be regained but yes in many cases again talking about the work of dave wake and and jim hankin um, we know that simply by making the limb bud larger, you would get the full, the full digits, basically. But by having a certain reduced number of, of cells, essentially, you would not have, you would still have the genetic programming to do it, but not the developmental mechanisms to do it. So potentially by making the limb bud larger again, you could re, like, you could recover the full limbs. It's not the same thing as losing a limb altogether and then getting the whole limb again. Um, it's surprisingly complicated uh, just what limitations apply. And, you know, Dolo's law is very intensively debated for all kinds of different traits because also parthenogenesis, um, uh, not, sorry, not parthenogenesis, viviparity and oviparity does not follow Dolo's law at all because each of the two different states can swap between the two. It's more like losing a very complex system, like losing an we, eyeball and I regaining we, an eyeball. Very. We different. talked. We've talked about that before. I think there was wasn't there. There was a skink paper or something where they studied that. Very right? probably. Yeah. 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 So, um, for one more thing, I would say about Bakia is that they they have this um, threatening display when you try to when they feel threatened that. Is similar. I don't know if you guys are familiar with what amphisbenas do when uh, what amphisbenids do when you're about to touch. Which they start like flipping around, like that's coiling. The, that's the critter I was trying to think of the name for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. That's they funny have a that similar. They, they do the same. <laughs> they look like them, and they do the same display. Yeah, they uh. have a similar display when you touch them. When they are not as aggressive as amphisbenids, because amphisbenids can be can bite really hard. Um, yeah. But but the bacchias are they do that sometimes when you try to touch them they start like coiling and jumping and doing all kind of jerky movements. Huh. Hmm. Which also is something that Atractaspis does from harking back to last uh, last month's episode. Um, the uh, is it Atractaspis the the stiletto snakes? Yeah. Yeah. They also have that that coil uncoil reaction, which of course they use to bite, but. Exactly. The only difference is the bacchus is not going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't fuck around with something you can't identify. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, we're moving into another subfamily, which is the Ecpleopodinae. Ek okay. Yeah. Ecpleopodinae. Yeah. And this one, you can see uh, there's a very uh, common genus here that everybody that works in the Amazon has, ever, has seen at some point or another. It's called Leposoma. And this is another, this is probably the prototypical gymnostalmids. That's like what the typical tiny leaf litter gymnostalmids looks like. And um, this is a very interesting 
um, group because until very recently, these animals were all housed in a genus and now they're like three, two, three separate genera. And um, they, they are not particularly closely related even though they look similar. Um, they have very interesting squamation too. Some of their scales are hexagonal and uh, on, on dorsal scales are hexagonal and they have um, this uh, lateral ocelli, which are interesting also coloration. Some, some of the species here that I'm seeing, I'm seeing on my Google uh, return are not the most the prettiest one. There are some that are very pretty and colorful. But I'm thinking mm. of some of the Colombian and Venezuelan species, which are not the first one that appear. The ones that you're seeing they are the almost. Uh, the I'm looking at Leposoma sinopolex, I think, and it mm -hmm. almost looks like a little uh, like a night lizard. Or, True. Uh, he, yeah. Yeah. They are. They are. They're very secretive. I, I, actually, some species are considered to be crepuscular too. I forgot. To say uh -huh. that some some of them are so night lizards are xanthusidae right that's the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. For those of us who don't know the common names sorry but yeah they're they have that sort of interesting like but if you they if really you, do if, i i totally agree but if i looked at one and i didn't have a sense of scale i would also guess that this is a xanthusid that i'm looking at they're tiny but if you, if you notice if you can zoom on one of the of the pictures and see there's the scales on their body yeah super yeah i see it yeah yeah, crazy. They're super, super, super interesting. And they live like all the others. So I think uh, I've heard one book referring to them as uh, many give not tell me, as shade lizards. That, that I think is an appropriate term because a lot of species live in the, you know, and the undergrowth and the, the leaf litter of the forest where there's very little sunlight that reaches that area. So they live mostly in the shade. I'm seeing what reference to spectacled tigus, yeah, which sounds like terrible. a terrible name. Well, that's they, they're called spectacled because of that transparent um, lower eyelid, apparently. Is that but that's only for that's only for gymnosthalmids, yeah. Op, so yeah. the ophthalmid in gymnothalmid. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, because that's what gymnosthalmids does. And then we get to the biggest of all subfamilies, which is Circosaurid. This is the most diverse. I'm going to do a quick search to see exactly how many species. I, I would point out to people that they should check the reptile database for the the like for the species list for these lizards. Um, the Wikipedia page is very out of date, in part also because taxonomy is just progressing on these lizards very intensively. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the things you simply well, can't rely on. Like, like I said, there are 55 genera in the family and at least at least, I want to say, at least 10 of those have been named since 2015. Yeah. 10 of those genera. So this is very, very, you know, fastly evolving. Okay, so I told you that there are 270, about 270 species of gymnostalmids. But about, I would say, roughly 200 and... 30, probably 200 or 200, around 200 or close to 200 of those species are in Cercosaurid. And, and the, reptile da the reptile database says that there are 221, but they're including all the other species of the other subfamilies that I'm separating from that subfamily. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's so the trouble with uh, searching through the reptile database. Sometimes if it has any at any point been in a certain group, it is often found in the results, which yeah. can be very uh, annoying if you wanted to sort, of sort things out. Yeah. So in this family, you have arboreal species, semi-aquatic species, um, uh, terrestrial fast runners. You have, you have all the variety of the family is in this family. So I'm going to talk about some genera that are particularly interesting because <clears throat> so, oh, one thing that I mentioned is that remember how we talked about how um, water skinks have their, I, I told you that water skinks have their counterparts in South America with the mm -hmm. helostalmids. Mm -hmm. So isn't this, a fam, isn't this a family that you find? It? And not only that, but I was, I was just reading a paper of a new genera <clears throat> that was named this year. Let me go check it for a minute. It's a new genera which is called Cataphractosaurus unger Hamiltonii, which is a very long name. Um, and it's a, it's a new species from Venezuela, a new genera, a new species from southern Venezuela. Uh, and it's one of these semi-aquatic species. Cool. And in the paper, in the phylogeny, it demonstrates that the, there has been separate within the subfamily Circosaurian, there have been separate um, evolution of this crocodile-like appearance for semi-aquatic species in at least, I would say, for what I can count here, around five times separately within the subfamily. Hmm. So this is a morphology that has evolved several times. Um, I'm going to send you a link to the research um, to this photo which has several of the, of the um, semi-aquatic lineages within the subfamily. This is very interesting for the people that are listening to us while I wait for to send you this <laughs> on the thing, on the, on the chat. So it's you can right. see there the, will be a link in the show notes. Yeah, you can see a link there to the different, these are all the, several yep. of the genera that have taken this Morphology, uh, this yeah, morphology. Uh, C there looks like remarkably like a, uh, a red-eyed crocodile skink. Yep, that's a genus called Echinosaura, and Echinos that that the, this new species was thought to be part of this genus, but wow. it's not even closely and, related. And F, like the face, looks like it, but not the body. Yep, that's that's, that's Nusticurus. is a it's another species from the from the. A Guyana shield in Venezuela, Brazil, and uh, Guyana. Huh. They're living in this in this region where there are a lot of small streams, and they behave pretty much like um, any typical semi-aquatic lizard. You would think they they bask on the rocks around rivers, and when they feel threatened, they quickly jump into the water. And they live at mostly uh, they live in this all this clear water uh, rivers for most most for the most part. Nusticurus. Eating invertebrates and stuff? Yeah. Nusticurus is also one of the largest um, uh, gymnostomids. They can, they can get it to about 12 centimeters, not to bank length. That's pretty much as large as gymnostomids get. Now, it's interesting that some of, the, uh, some of our Jimmy species that we've seen, several of them, have had those ocellae on yep. just above the insertion of the forelimb so, in yep. exactly the same spot as yep. the 
geckos have them, right? In yeah, the same and they, habitats, they, right? they actually have them. Well, that's a very common pattern in lizards, actually. The, 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 the in Salana. South America. Yeah. Outside of South America, it's not common at all. Hmm. I can't think of any. Maybe there's one Lycodaxilus that has that. But in Madagascar, nothing. I'm trying to think if in Africa, I think some of the cardiolids have that too. Do they? I think so. It's interesting. Because uh, um, of course the Gonatodes come to mind, um, and also Spherodactylus, but I don't know how many other groups of lizards actually have that. Um, it's super common in South America in many groups, and it may have to do something with the fact that forests, you know, those are reflective spots, and they catch sunlight, and uh, they're very bright sometimes. Yeah, and, and they serve as a signaling. Males have them particularly um, noticeable. So these are super interesting because they also, they also have uh, uh, um, they have all these keels uh, and tu tubercules with keels on their dorsal surface like a crocodile basically, and yeah. their their uh, tails are also in some of the groups are uh, laterally flattened to help them swim. So it's it's uh, it's a really interesting that lizards and not only gymnosalmids but lizards have done this morphology repeatedly. The crocodile yeah, trick. Yeah, the <laughs> crocodile trick. Uh, to the point of also developing uh, these large uh, scales, which in other groups have osteoderms, but as I said, gymnotomies um, do not have osteoderms. I kind so of wonder why, why, though. Like, what's the... It's not hydrodynamic uh, to be spiky, so what, <laughs> what is the reason for that? I, I'm not sure. But something is happening because <laughs> because you have you have teats like um, Crocodilurus or Dracaena, which yeah. also are semi-aquatic and they have the same, you know, cro I, even I could, more. I, I mean, I could almost see with Dracaena is a large enough, that, you know, and it's called a caiman lizard that you could almost mistake it for a small caiman. Oh, for sure. Uh, that you know, like it, that that it's doing something in that in terms of mimicking another animal, but like. I don't know. It's just bizarre that it's actually really interesting that you mentioned that because there are several aquatic snakes as well that also have very rough scales. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about uh, even, even um, of course, the 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 earless monitors, the Bornea, um, the Bornea. Uh, what yeah, are they I know. called? Latinotus. Uh, let the notice, yes. Yeah. Let the notice have also this very weird horny skin. Uh, you have um, the uh, dragon snakes as well. Yeah, it's so, interesting yeah. to point out that, that, that mosasaurs have very tiny scales, but they were all sharply killed tiny mm. scales. So sort of shark-like. There must be something doing there. You know, it's like, you know, how sharks have those scales that apparently it make them more, the water yeah. make them more. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I say they're not hydrodynamic, but maybe maybe they are. Maybe they, they are. I, mean, I think that's know. what it is. There, there's it obviously, might be that you reduce the resistance from, you cut through the water, essentially. That's possible. But I don't know. None of these things are moving particularly fast in the water either. Well, right. they are fast swimmers. Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole thing. These are very, these, unlike the other, these are very active. Some of them are, are, are heliothermic. This group, some of them are heliothermic. They live in open spaces and they are quick move, move, 
Quick moving species. Cro- uh, mm. Crocodile skinks not particularly fast though. So, and Dracaena's not really that hugely. It's not a super. Well, well I they, would I guess not they, call Dr- Yeah, I would not call yeah. Dracaena as much as a, 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 a slow lizard by any means. And then you also have <laughs> Crocodilurus, which is the other, also the other large tier hmm. that is yeah. um, also that one. That is also um, semi-aquatic right. and large. I it's just, yeah, I guess we were just th- thinking it's not necessarily speed is all over the place with in terms of all the yeah. animals that look like that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting that, that nature seems to be converging on something there and it's not clear. Yeah. <laughs> it's not clear why. Yeah. So actually, while we're talking about semi-aquatic animals, I wanted to bring up a paper that just... Uh, I think last, yeah, on the 12th of May was published in Current Biology. Um, the title is Repeated Evolution of... Wait. The website's, like, freaking out on me. Uh, repeated Evolution of... Ah! <laughs> of Underwater Rebreathing in Diving Enola's Lizards. So this is a follow-up on the paper uh, that we had mentioned on the yeah. on the observations that we had mentioned by Lindsay Swirk and other colleagues um, of this weird diving bell habit in anoles um, yeah, and, that, and are, this, that are retreating into the water. This is super oh. interesting because I think, you know, tying it back to the gymnosalmids, I think that's something that should be studied in groups like Echinosaura, like Nusticurus, all these semi-aquatic groups that nobody does. I mean... We only found Nobody's out about done those. That research. Yeah. No, and they are they, a lot of them living. What if very difficult to areas that are difficult to access because what if the spiky it, skin has something to do with with um, rebreathing potential? Yeah, that could be. That, you that have, is, that's exactly why I wanted to bring it in. Yeah, because there is definitely potential that you could be essentially forming a large bubble over your body. Now that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. That's. Yeah. And I, and I have a I have a feeling that something like that could be happening also in um, mop-headed lizards, which are called mop-headed because <laughs> or, because they they are thought that that all the channels of you know they, they are semi-aquatic Amazonian lizards, but they they're supposed that they receive water from when it rains. One of the hypotheses somebody proposed, which I think is bullshit, but somebody proposed at some point is that the the, re, the the keels on the scales allow for all the water that he collects when he's raining or something to reach his mouth, which is bullshit because the animal is semi-aquatic. So well, isn't what, um, that's Moloch? Moloch, yeah, 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 but Moloch lives in a freaking desert. This is an Amazonian. Yes, where it makes sense. It's an right. Amazonian semi-aquatic lizard. So um, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. But Weird. it could have something to do with what the analysis is doing because Uranoscodon, which is the mopeda lizard, is you know dives very well, and hmm. and um, it also um, it's another lizard that doesn't. Uh, mopeda lizard, lizard's a New World lizard. Yep, I, I you can see the uh, link. I oh, I see the, it. Yeah, okay, okay. Because it looks a lot like um, the Thai forest lizard. Uh, One of those uh, agamets. Yeah, it, it. Uh, I was just looking at one because someone had a. It turned out to be something else that was related, but it was. I was trying to help ID something. One of those goniophilies. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or colodes. Colodes, ca- yeah, colodes. It was. Uh, it was one of the colodes. Like the female colody looks a lot like that. Weird. Well, 
the the quick insert about Uranoscodon. Yeah, yeah, we're getting off. We're getting... <laughs> Is that Uranoscodon, the, the mopeda lizard, can also walk uh, across the water into in, like basilisks. Ah, so it has the cool. fringe. The fringe. Yeah, thing. it does. It doesn't, and that's not as uncommon as people might think. There is a tea that can do that. Can do that also. But we'll, there we'll are dogs that can do it too. Yeah, that we'll leave that for another episode. Okay, so yeah. um, and so in this group, there are also some really cool. Some perhaps my favorite. Game of Talents, um, arboreal um, species in the genus Anadia. This is A N A D I A. A duck lizard? Uh, oh, yeah. No. <laughs> oh, that's Anadidae. Okay. No, this is Anadia, <laughs> which I think is a name. It's a it's a it's a female name. Um. You, yeah. And it's actually, if you, there's a city in Portugal, if you do yeah. the Google research, that's what's gonna come up. But if you do um. Let me see. If you put, like, for Anadia example, Anadia rumbifera. or Ocelata, it's a good, a good exact example. So, this is a genus that is, it's not super well represented molecularly. So there's still a lot of surprises to come from it. I don't think it's monotypic because there are several species that look very different one oh. from another. Oh, this one's pretty skinky looking. Well, I would say more than skinky is very anguid like. It looks, it looks a, lot a lot like, like a oh, yeah. lizarded. It yeah. looks like the, the lizardids with extremely long tails. Well, or... I was looking at Anadia Peter's eye, which immediately made me think of a uh, like a sandfish or a banded uh, Peter's banded skink or something. Oh yeah, true. Um, but some some of the large species um, look a lot like a bronia. Yeah, yeah, I could see. Peter's that. eye also looks like a stretched abronia. But um, yeah. let me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, some example like um, let me see a. a oh, marmorata looks pretty. Marmorata is one of one that is like a. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Marmorata, <clears throat> and so a lot of these species are arboreal. There's some of them are seldom seen, even though they're not uncommon, because they live high in the canopy. And I'm talking about thirty meters in the canopy. They live in bromeliads. Around bromeliads, oh. um, so so in South, in neotropics in the neotropical forests, there are two levels of leaf litter. There's the leaf litter that accumulates on the floor, and then there's this leaf litter that accumulates in the branches of the trees. A lot of immortalmids also use this leaf litter in the branches. You know, one of the search results that comes up is you on Twitter. Also, if you it says if you like abronia, look at this. <laughs> it's true because they look they look so, so and they one of the cool thing is that we I have a friend that was keeping an abronia marmorata a group of abronia marmorata and this is the coolest thing this has never been documented or, or, or anything and then don't I do not think I've ever heard of this in any old lizard but in the tank the abronia would um, you know how bromeliads keep water in the center yeah. So it yeah. would go like a frog, and it would go in the water in the center and sleep there. Huh. Within the water in the center of the bromeliad. Smart. But that's I've don't, I don't think I've ever heard of that behavior in any lizard. So these are pretty. They're pretty small. No, well, Abronia so. marmorata is another large. Uh, uh, you can get um, Anadia marmorata is another large uh, game of time. You can go 
to our bromeocytes. So it must have been a large bromeliad then. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a, so oh, okay. it, he had this big tank because it was the first time that we actually had the opportunity to keep some alive because they are, they are not uncommon, but they're seldom seen. You, they never come down from the canopy and it's rare that you find them. So they had this pair and one of them was sleeping there. And to me, that, that seems like something worse. It's another one of those things that, you know, we know so little of this family and they are like full of surprises. They have mm -hmm. very large rectangular scales. A lot of the species in, in Anaria also live high in the paramos. You will find also in this group of lizards, in, in this subfamily of, of, of gymnostomids, there are a lot of species that live high in the paramos, so high in the Andes. They live where there's no trees, a lot of the species live in frailejones, which are these large, almost primitive-looking um, plants. So they look similar to some of those plants that you see in the mountains of Africa. That have like a, um, I don't know how you would call them. Um, if you're familiar with that, this is the name of the of the of the plants. They are large okay. plants. Fray Lejon, they're called. And uh, they, they live, they oh, yes. occur in the Andes. Mm -hmm. So they... They as look they, like stacked aloes. Yes. And, and they, as, as the plant grows, it accumulates dead leaves, dead leaves, dead leaves on its trunk. Oh, and I a lot see. Of these, okay. A lot of these lizards live, and a lot of frogs and a lot of animals in high in the Andes. Um, like I'm talking about 4,000 meters 5,000 meters above the sea level. No, 5,000 too much. 4,000 meters above the sea level. They live right under those leaves to protect themselves from the environment, which is pretty yeah. harsh. At those they do look pretty prehistoric, almost like cycads or something. Like, yeah. You know. weird. Yeah. So the, inside, the, when, you, when you're in the Andes and you look there, you, that's where everything lives, right? So there you find anarias, for example, a big example. You find frogs, like there are a lot of... Um, Pristimantis that live there. And um, so in this group, you find a lot of those high Andean species that look like that and um, arboreal, the semi-aquatic ones. And let me see if I'm missing. There are some um, species in the genus Cercosora. So C-E-R-C-O-Sora <laughs> that are almost whiptail-like in behavior. And they live, they are like fast running, long tailed. Um, several of them are striped with the, also with the ocelli that we discussed, they also tend to have those ocelli. And they live in the, in the they behave more like a mixture between a skink and a whip tail lizard. Bright orange tail on this one. Yeah, they, they, they often yeah. have very long tails and the tail tend to be colorful because, you know, as yep. many lizards do, it's a, it's a, 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 a way to, to get at the attention away from your important body parts that you cannot regrow. And that's pretty much it. That's a good, that's a good uh, very superficial look at Gimnosanis. But as you can see, it's a very diverse, you know, yeah. poorly understood group that most people that are outside neotropics or do, do not work with neotropical uh Herpetofauna is not really super familiar with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, 
fascinating group, especially from my perspective uh, as a person who focuses entirely on old world animals. Um, it's super interesting, all the groups that are only found in the new world, as it were, um, and jimmies are prominent among them, but we always take them for granted or ignore them because, I don't know, they're just not, you know. None of the species that we saw were spectacularly beautiful in the sense that, like, Abronia is a spectacularly beautiful lizard. So I see how they sort of slip under the radar for a lot of people. But they're really cool. I mean, that they have covered such an intensely, such a broad range of niches all within the sort of long lizard uh, yeah, shape. I, it's really cool. I kind of wrote them off mentally as just sort of skinky looking little lizards skinky boys skinky boys and uh but they're they're not they're kind of occupying like a lot of niche more than that and yeah you know like you've got I... some doing doing anole or gecko impressions almost yeah. and you know <laughs> i would i would disagree that they're for me they're very uh, i think that some of the species are really beautiful i think they're not like uh i, I think uh, they're not like um, flashy, like an agama could be, or sure. Well, yeah, that's I was. What I, mean. I would come to your defense, but you called Ambistema uh, boring <laughs> at the beginning of this. So yeah, you're yeah. dead to me. <laughs> it's true. No, but for me, I mean, I, I like, I really like their their big scales and their colors, and they have this, you know, bright ocelli, and their their habits are very poorly understood we basically are just scratching what we know about them so for me they're a blank canvas of all the things that we can well and it may have saved them a little bit because they're yeah. you know being unremarkable and a little a little bit uh like i like i said at the beginning they're not something that's commonly seen in the in the pet trade and that that may be uh that may be good for them so yeah yeah undoubtedly is good for them so it's really interesting to me that they have those most species have very large scales, whereas mm -hmm. you said they are relatively closely related to the taids, right? And the taids typically have very small granular scales, right? Well, but many of them have tiny mm -hmm. granular scales. Well, but their but their ventral surfaces and their tails are covered by very large plates. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Because I mean, on some of the pictures, like we were discussing. Some of them are just so incredibly similar to the the crocodile lizards that I would have just sort of naturally assumed that the that they are somehow related to each other. Uh, alligator lizards, alligator lizards. Yeah. They to me, to me, they're covering also a lot of like South America doesn't have a lot of anguids either. We have languids, but mm -hmm. not that many, and they are covering a lot of that um, niche. I would think there's a yeah. the, mm -hmm. they they can have like really interesting patterns and they a lot of them look a lot like what you will see uh, galley wasp look like yeah mm -hmm. true yeah really true fantastic well uh listeners i hope you enjoyed our uh, brief foray into the uh, jimmies um if there are any other taxa that you'd like to hear us talk about and give strong opinions on whether they're founded or not do let us know um <laughs> I would advise listeners to really um, listen to the to the show notes or, or search the show notes while they're listening to this episode because it will help them, you know, see a visual reference. I'm gonna try to find stuff to put in the show notes to to show um, 
even in even just drawing. even just having the 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 genuses uh, the 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 taxa names uh available yeah, to the google yeah the ones that we yeah. mentioned will be yeah. useful yeah and i'm going to put some of my own drawings of uh oh nice uh, yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. To see. you okay. do you do seem to show you are an evangelist for the jimmies so uh like i, I said some we, of the, you yeah. showed up in the the google results <laughs> funny enough i never worked with them i was about to work with them and i never really got to work with them completely yeah yeah but not anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, as as uh, we mentioned earlier in the show, do please try and, well, do follow our social media spaces and check out for our upcoming Patreon where you'll also be able to get some fun things related to these kinds of show notes. Uh, but until then, uh, Ethan, where can one find you on the internet? I am at Black Mud Puppy nearly everywhere. And Gabriel, I'm at Serpent Illus on Twitter and on Fa- on, on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. I am as Gabriel Ugeto Art. Fantastic! You can find me at Mark Schertz, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z on most of the places, all the places that really matter. Facebook doesn't really matter. At MD Shirts, if you do want to find okay. me there. Um, you can follow the show on all of the social media platforms except for TikTok because we're not that young. Um, and uh, at Squamates Pod is where you want to find us on Twitter at Squamates Pod, on Instagram at Squamates Pod, on Facebook at Squamates Pod. Uh, you can send us an email, squamatespod at gmail.com. If you have also hot takes, you can also leave us a comment on our website, Squamates Pod. Dot com, where you can also find the extensive show notes, which include references for everything we mentioned on the show, as well as, in this case, probably beautiful art from Gabriel and photographs of some other species and all kinds of really cool things. And until next time... Hakuna 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 Hakuna. Hakuna.